Music to my ears, the podcast that discusses generational wealth and wealth in general. Welcome your host, Stephen Lewis. So today in the studio, I have Tom Pulowski. Tom spent probably the last 25 years of his life traveling around the country to work with some of the nation's wealthiest families on wealth transfer strategies. Prior to 2005, he was a partner in the Trust and Estates Department at Winston and Strawn in Chicago. He's on the faculty of the American Bankers Association National Trust and the National Graduate Trust Schools. In addition to that, he has been an adjunct professor at Loyola University Chicago, uh, the law school, and has taught estate planning classes at Northwestern University in law, uh, law school. So not doing a whole lot, huh, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> no, Steve, I keep myself pretty busy. But thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, I'm glad to. And, and I had a specific question that comes up so often that I thought you're the perfect person to bring it to. I have these discussions with clients as we go through music to my heirs and giving away money to their kids. And they say, I'd like to give money away to my kids. But what if I need it back? Or what if I give away too much? How do you answer the question, how do you give money away to the kids but not put yourself in a position that you could need it back? Well, Steve, there's a couple different ways you can deal with that. But I think the simplest is this. Don't give it to them. Give them instead just the future growth of the assets but keep the assets for yourself. That's what families of means are doing today. They don't give away. They tend not to give away the assets themselves, but they give away future growth. They don't allow too much of that growth to stay on their balance sheet, which means that if you put the growth in a place where the government can't get it in the form of an estate tax, where my creditors can't get at it if I'm the person who's creating this trust, where the beneficiaries' creditors can't get after it and the beneficiaries' spouses can't touch it. It's protected from their claims. Families of means find that to be a very satisfactory way to sort of get assets to their children without actually giving anything away and making themselves feel a little bit impoverished in the process. You've got to tell us where is this this place where you can put that. Well, the, the mechanism that's used is a trust. And, of course, a trust is simply a legal mechanism, perfectly acceptable, where I transfer assets to the trustee and I specify who are the beneficiaries of these assets and what, under what circumstances are they allowed to get distributions of the property. The trustee is directed to invest the trust assets in accordance with my instructions. And that trust, if it's irrevocable, and if I'm not a beneficiary of the trust, my creditors can't reach it. And all the other benefits that I just mentioned inure to that trust. So you mentioned irrevocable. I just need you to, for, for the listeners, what do you mean by the term irrevocable? Well, when I create it, that means it's permanently created. I can't change my mind about it. I can't take the money back. Okay. There are ways that these trusts can be drafted by attorneys to make them very flexible in the way that they're administered so that some changes can take place. And Texas law recently changed in a very favorable way so that there's a sort of a, a legal statutory method that can be used to change a trust. But basically what it means is that when I part with the right to the growth of these assets, I'm not going to be able to get the growth back. But I set it up in a way that I can get the assets back if and when I need them. Okay, so I can get the asset back, not the growth back. How How is the trust structured that the growth is going to go to the trust 
but I'm still going to get the asset back. Walk me through that. Well, there's a couple different ways you can do it, Steve. And I think the one that resonates with most people that I talk to is what if instead of giving assets to the trust, I sell assets to the trust, but I don't require that the trust pay me in cash right away for those assets. Instead, the trust gives me a promissory note. The note will have a very long term. If we were to do this today, if I were to set something up like this with your family, I might make the term of that note 20 years. So what that means is that the trust gets to use my assets for the next 20 years. It owes me a little bit of interest every year. And and in a 20-year note, the rate of interest that we'd have to charge today would be about 3%. But all of the rest of the growth, aside from that 3% interest charge, is going to be in the trust. And that growth is going to compound and compound and compound over a 20-year period. And 20 years from now, the trust will have to pay me back the property that I originally sold to it. I retain the right under the legal documents to call that note sooner if I want to. So if I need to get paid back in 10 years, I can get paid back in 10. If I need the assets back in five, I can get it back in five. But in the meantime, all the growth above that interest rate is settling in that trust and will never be subject to estate tax. So I'm listening to my mother right now saying, give me an analogy. Make this simple for me. You're, you're making a loan to the trust and it's going to owe you the money back. Right. Help me think about it in, 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 in a form where I maybe have made a loan in my life before or some kind of an analogy. Well, I mean, this may be an oversimplification, but what if you owned a piece of real estate that had valuable mineral rights associated with it? It could be oil or something like that. The analogy that I would use is say, I'm going to let you use my real estate for the next 20 years and mine anything you can and drill anything you can out of that land, but at the end of the 20 years, I want the land back. This is similar to that, but the difference is I'm not giving you the use of the land for free. I'm charging you 3% per year for that privilege. And, and obviously your expectation is the mineral rights value would be so much more than 3%. That's absolutely the hope. You want whatever the trust invests in to generate more return over a long period of time than the 3% interest rate charge that I'm required to assess. So that brings up a great question. Do, what, what types of options do you look at when you look at investments for a trust like this? And are you looking for a certain profile in, a, in an investment when you think about something to go into this structure? Yeah. So um, several different ways of looking at that, Steve. One is that I know that the trust is going to have an obligation to pay me 3% per year. And ordinarily, I'd like that to be in cash just because this is a bona fide sale. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not something that's supposed to be a phony baloney sale. This is a legitimate sale. So I want to make sure that the trust is generating enough cash to pay its interest rate obligation to me. Second, I want to transfer to the trust the assets, the, the growthiest things that I have on my balance sheet. Those things are typically stocks rather than bonds, for example. Stocks tend to grow. Historically, stocks have grown at about 10%, whereas bonds have produced half that much in terms of total return. We think returns in the near future are probably going to be less than that for both stocks and bonds. But I want to put something growthy enough in there that I'm sure that the total return of that asset is going to be more than the 3% interest rate that I'm required to, to put in there. And the trust is going to be created with a unique feature. And I have to get a little bit technical for this to make any sense. But the trust is going to be something called a grantor trust. And what that means in the tax law is that the trust and I are treated as one and the same solely for income tax purposes. Right. I'm deemed to continue to own the assets that I sell in this example to the trust. That means when it comes time to pay income taxes, 
I'm paying taxes on dividends and interest and capital gains on my own assets, and I'm also paying those taxes on behalf of the assets in the trust. Now, because the grantor trust and I are one and the same for income tax purposes, that means that I can exchange assets on an equal value basis with the trust any time that I want to, in most cases, and not have to recognize any gain in that exchange. Ordinarily, Steve, if I took something, some appreciated property and transferred it to you and you transferred appreciated property back to me, each of us would owe capital gain tax on that exchange. But when I do that with a grantor trust, I don't have to recognize any of that gain. And that interesting, unique feature, the fact that it's a grantor trust means that I can swap growthy assets into the trust and take things that used to be growthy but aren't anymore back onto my balance sheet and do that over and over and over again. So I'm always populating that trust with the growth, growthiest stuff that I have. Well, and I think that solves a lot of the problems of, of trying to figure out today what is the right opportunity for a 20-year decision. But you're saying it's not a 20-year decision, not on the asset or the investment. You can make some changes along the way. I agree with that. I would say, you know, your horizon isn't one day, mm-hmm. but it's a lot less than 20 years. I'd say, what's the growthiest thing right now? Things that have over the next year or so the best potential to grow the fastest. And a year can, from now, we can re-examine that and decide, do we still have the growthiest things in there or are some changes needed? And we can make those adjustments over time. So when I get to the end of this term, you said 20 years, it could be the period that you choose. What if the assets aren't equal to the note? Let's say something didn't go well. How do you look at that? Or distributions were made to the beneficiaries of the trust, and there's not enough left to pay back. Yes, the there you go. There's another example. That's a problem, and uh, one of the one of one of the things that we would have to do is determine at that time whether the um, the trust would have to come up with some extraordinary means to um, sort of revitalize that. What I would do in a case like that mm-hmm. is, if I had the ability as the person to whom the trust owed money. Uh, the tax laws give every person in the United States what's called the basic exclusion amount. It's an amount that they can exclude from estate taxes and consequently also from gift taxes. So let's assume that I originally sold the trust $10 million of assets, and now it's 20 years from now, and the trust only has $6 million of assets available to it. I would have the option to forgive $4 million of debt, I'd use $4 million of my basic exclusion amount to forgive that debt, and the trust would pay me back $6 million. Now, I hope that that deficit was not the result of of poor investing. I would hope that that deficit was the result of distributions to beneficiaries, and they got some enjoyment out of the property over that 20-year period. Your example that you posited, what would happen if the assets didn't produce anything? You actually had a negative return. I've never had that experience in 25 years. It's never happened before, but it's possible. So we have to at least take into account what will, what will we do. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I thought it was important for us to at least talk about it. I think that's why it's so important to sit down, to do some planning ahead of time, to try to pre-experience what that time would look like, model out different investment options or structures to say, we don't want that to happen. What's going to give us the highest probability of reaching the goal of making this work? And let me see if I get my math right. If it works correctly, let's use that $10 million example. Mm-hmm. And we use 20 years. I'm going to use the old rule of 72 here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that the $10 million doubles in 10 years once. So 10 is now 20. Mm-hmm. The 20 doubles again in the next, now we're at $40 million. Mm-hmm. 
but I owe ten million back on the note. Right. So at the end of that twenty years, assuming my wonderful investment strategy that just happened, I have forty million. I owe ten million. I've been paying interest along the way, and that trust now possesses thirty million dollars, free and clear into the trust. That's right. The, the trust would have to generate, the trust portfolio would have to generate enough return to double in value and service that 3% mm-hmm. debt requirement. Assuming that all those requirements were met, you've got it exactly right. There'd be $30 million in the trust 20 years from now. So I think the question I hear whenever I talk about money coming into trust and doing well is who can be trusty? Uh, that's, so that's a good question. So first of all, if I'm the person that's selling assets to the trust, I do not want to be the trustee of that trust. It runs too great a risk that the IRS will take the position that those assets should be includable in my estate because I controlled everything about them all through my lifetime. The safer move is to have somebody else be the trustee, but it doesn't have to be the, a stranger. So, for example, I could use my spouse as the trustee. I could use one or more of my children as the trustee. I might have a business associate or someone like that, an unrelated party that could be the trustee. And I could use a bank or trust company as the trustee. Each of those things has trade-offs. For example, if I make my spouse the trustee of the trust, especially if she's a beneficiary, her ability to distribute assets to the beneficiaries may be somewhat restricted. If I pick someone who's not a family member as the trustee, they're personally liable for mistakes that they make, either with respect to investing the trust or administering the trust. I don't want to stick a friend or a business associate with a potential liability, so I'm a little nervous about that. Banks or trust companies can do a good job, and they're obviously experienced in doing this, but they also charge a fee. So we want to make sure that whatever fee is being charged makes sense. And if they're going to be the ones investing the assets, we want to make sure that they're capable of doing a good job of that. If they're not going to be capable or we don't think they're really the best investment advisor, then we want to set up a system where the trustee understands that their sole job is to administer the trust and some independent party will will manage the assets of the trust and not cause in the trust being overcharged for those services. Yeah, and that's, and that's such an important point, that getting somebody without a conflict that can really say this is going to be the right right answer for them. So, Tom, you always seem to come up with the right answers. I'm going to summarize a little bit that, that we can solve the problem. Um, there, are, there is an ability to give away the appreciation of the assets but still maintain the assets. Your recommendation is use that trust vehicle to provide a lot of other value in there beyond just uh, a, a holding tank. It's got asset protection. It's got other things. And that you can find help along the way to make sure as long as you pick the right investments and model You've got some flexibility in there. I agree with that, Steve. You know, the, um, I'm an old military man, too, and one of the, one of the kind of weapons that they, they have in the military is called fire and forget. Once the bullet leaves the barrel of the gun, you don't even look at it anymore. You're just going to hope that it's going to be on target. And I don't think this kind of planning is a fire and forget kind of a strategy. What you want to do, this is a strategy that should be managed. So what you want to do is set it up right in the first place, and then don't forget about it. When, you know, you said, what, could the trust run out of money? Well, if the money got invested all in cash and stayed there for 20 years and had a 3% interest charge, I think we might have the very problem that you described. So you want to make sure that you're paying attention to this, that the trustee's paying attention to their duties, and that you're surrounded by advisors who understand how these strategies work and that the strategy is being managed so that it'll produce a result that's really going to be more like the $30 million that you described and not the $6 million left in the trust that we talked about as well. 
Yeah, and it sounds like if it's done well, you could do it even with kids being fairly young at this age because you, you can have this set up with the right advice along the way. You don't have to wait later in life. Even if you're young with a lot of wealth, you could start the process now. Absolutely right. You know, I think people feel like this process is all about handing a bag full of money to an 11-year-old, and that's simply not what's going on here. In fact, I'd put it this way. Most people, when they set up their estate plan, they have this built into their plan already. The only difference between what we're talking about now and what usually happens is that plan that they've already put in place in their will or in their revocable trust is scheduled to be funded when they die. What this is about is start chipping away at that funding now. Successful families, that's what they do. And you'll find that in the long run, when you run the numbers, you'll find that the amount of estate tax that has to get paid is a lot less if you start now rather than wait till you die. Thanks, Tom. This has been Music to My Ears. For more information on this podcast or to ask a question, just email us at stephen.lewis at bernstein.com. Music.